This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 premieres Monday, May 13th on Exactly Right. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. But when we notice in the moment, like, oh, this is what's coming up for me and we're not judging it, then we can respond to that part with intention of like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You just got slapped across the face. (laughs) Anytime someone hits you, it makes sense to want to fight back. And then I can start to move through those feelings and really allow them and process what's coming up. But being aware of them, being mindful of that reaction is cornerstone. You can't regulate what you're not aware of. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is Tiny Humans, Big Emotions with Alyssa Blask-Campbell. Alyssa is CEO of Seed and Sow. She has a master's degree in early childhood education, is a leading expert in emotional development, and travels the globe speaking on the topic. Her podcast, Voices of Your Village, is a gathering place for parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts, creating a modern parenting village and reaches listeners in more than 100 countries. Seed and Sow serves people across the globe through speaking, consulting, online courses, and early childhood professional development programs, sharing tools and expertise to build emotional intelligence. She's been featured as an expert in publications such as the Washington Post, Burlington Free Press, and Family Education. And she, along with Lauren Staubel, are authors of their new book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, How to Navigate Tantrums, Meltdowns, and Defiance to Raise Emotionally Intelligent Children. Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so jazzed to be here. So... I want to, we're going to talk about how you got to this place. But before I just have to say, you guys have created a whole new concept and paradigm. Is that like mind blowing for you? I think that it comes from so many people who did so much work before us and we just get to ride those coattails for a little bit. (laughs) Um, But I can't take all this credit. I also like there's no movement in this without the people doing the work, you know, like I feel so grateful to have had the privilege and opportunity to be in an environment where I could do research and uh, dive into this work on that side of things and then get to walk alongside so many incredible parents, teachers and caregivers who also want to do this work. That is such a privilege. You're very gracious. Um, You're very gracious and humble. And um, I'm just so impressed. The book, we're going to talk about the book and what's in the book, which is what's so critical about this new revolution of children being taught to express their emotions as opposed to just tamp them down, regulate them, and put them away. Right? It just doesn't seem like this should be rocket science, but it... um, it really is an emerging has been an emerging paradigm that you that you guys have put a um, words to it, a name to it, yeah. and a concept to it. And of course, I'm I'm teasing everyone. We're not going to say what that is yet. Okay, so 
your path to childhood education. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. I It was a windy road for a minute there. I remember in college saying to my mom, my mom said something about how she thought I would be a really good teacher. And she worked in education and my dad works in education. And I said, I'm not just going to be a teacher, mom. And then fast forward, I was, I became a teacher and was like, I love this. <laughs> and, but that like, oh, I'm not going to just like follow and because it was what they did. It was what my parents had done. And I was going to do something totally different. Uh, and then I fell in love with teaching and tiny humans and found myself teaching preschool as I was getting my master's in early ed. And every day on my lunch break, I would go and snuggle babies and play with babies in the infant toddler space and started to kind of fall in love with infant toddler development and really found myself then in this span of teaching from kindergarten down to infants and eventually a director at a childcare center and then got to work at a really resource-rich childcare center where every head teacher has a master's in early ed, and uh, it's, we had a occupational therapist and speech pathologist to support us. We were attached to university, so we could do research and all that. It was super dreamy, mm-hmm. and I realized, like, oh my gosh, I love this, and so much of what I'm supposed to be teaching, I didn't learn growing up that I'm supposed to be teaching kids these skills for their emotional development. And it would sound really great in practice when I'm like in a workshop and I'm like, totally. Yep. I can say that phrase to a kid next time they're having a hard time. And then a kid slaps me across the face or hits, hits their friend or throws something. And all of a sudden those words I'm supposed to say are nowhere to be found (laughs) and I can't access them. And so that, is what continued my path then into the emotional development world of like, what does this really look like to do in practice? And what did you find, like, what was, is the Mm -hmm. state of education around emotions before you guys came up with this latest paradigm? Totally. Oh, I, my master's focused so much on classroom management and behavior management, right? So on How do we help make certain behaviors stop so that we can have what we call pro-social behaviors and have kids who are able to do what I consider like the social aspects of emotional development? Not a whole lot focused on how do we build their self-awareness and their tools for regulation and help them understand how their bodies work so that they can access these things and be able to show up in a classroom setting that we don't have to then manage behaviors all day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's about 2016, you and Lauren met. Is this at, this, at the school that you're referring to? The yep. The enriched school, right. So, mm-hmm. so you guys meet and you start talking about the kids and what you're seeing. How did that happen? Yeah, she came up and she was like, hey, I think we're doing something different. She was teaching preschool pre-K at the time, and I was an infant toddler. And I was like, cool, let's dive into it. So we started like video lessoning each other and really looking at like, what were we doing? And we kind of created like a framework for what we were doing and figured like, there's going to be a model for this. There has to be an approach for this that we could bring to our director, to our program, to our school. And as we were then looking and diving into what existed and then what existed for research in emotional development, we found bits and pieces, but nothing that was comprehensive to what we were doing. Because what we were doing really focused so much on us as the adult and started there versus let's start with the kids, which is Mm -hmm. what we were exposed to so often. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so then we ended up building out what we call the collaborative emotion processing method, the SEP method. We designed it and then we researched it in conjunction with that university we were attached to. And that's what Tiny Humans, Big Emotions is all built upon. So cool. So um, you guys write CEP, which you now have heard everyone, is collaborative emotional processing, is a guide to noticing our habits and patterns and choosing our response more thoughtfully. 
It is the key to allowing children to experience challenges or hard emotions while knowing they aren't alone in the process and building the tools for how to navigate them. Yeah. Yeah. So they actually get to express their emotions and we work with them to understand their emotions and learn to regulate their emotions. We don't punish them and consequence them for their emotions as the primary tool. Exactly. Or even have them believe that they're not supposed to feel it, right? Just the other day, I have a two and a half year old uh, and I'm 31 weeks pregnant with my second. And my, thank you, my two and a half year old the other day on the way to school, he said, mama, sometimes I feel nervous at school. And there's a part of me from my childhood that wants to say like, oh, buddy, you don't have to be nervous. You're safe there. Right. And that's so dismissive in the moment and tells him you aren't supposed to feel nervous. It's not safe to feel nervous. And so when I can pause and notice and regulate my reaction and respond with intention, then I can say something like, yeah, it makes sense to feel nervous sometimes. Mm -hmm. What helps you feel safe when you're feeling nervous? And normalizing that like nervous makes sense. It's an okay feeling to experience. You're so right. It's such, um, I want to say I'm older than you, but our generational response, like collectively to just do the, um, you're going to be okay, right? Like provide security and comfort, right? So at face value, that seems like a really appropriate response, the initial response, right? To just be oh, like, this is, this is a really safe place. Your teacher really likes you. You have your friends there. You'll be all right. Right. With, with good intention, exactly. but you're right. We, we don't, it, it ends up being dismissive. And then we also lose out on a teaching moment about being human and about managing normal emotions. Exactly. And I think for so many of us as adults now, We have a slew of emotions that we feel like we're not supposed to feel, and we don't know what to do with when we do feel them. When we feel scared and we try to make it go away, and then we end up in an anxiety spiral, or when we feel overwhelmed and we feel like we're not supposed to feel overwhelmed, we're supposed to be able to do it all. And so we don't ask for help, right? Like these things that so many folks in our generation are now grappling with that when I look to our tiny humans, I'm like, this is where we can make a change. This is where we can see like, what are our biggest challenges now? And how do we make those shifts into, yeah, it makes sense to feel that sometimes. And it's Mm -hmm. okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. Um, And and our triggers are going to come up there. One that we've been talking about in our teacher community lately is the idea of learned helplessness. And uh, some of our teachers were like, yeah, well, they need to like learn these self-help skills. And they're just, I know that they can zip up their jacket or they can put on their shoes and they're just choosing not to do it. And I popped in and was like, I wonder what it would look like for us as adults when our nervous system feels overwhelmed, if we felt comfortable turning to the people around us to say, hey, I know I know how to do this, but can you help me please? I'm feeling really overwhelmed. Do Mm -hmm. I know how to do the dishes? Do I know how to grab my groceries? Totally. When my husband participates in them, I feel cared for and supported. And it's nice to be able to have somebody to lean on. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking so um, uh, often at these things like self-help skills, for instance, so often what really is coming up for us are these childhood patterns where we weren't allowed to ask for help. And so when our kids ask for help, it's mm-hmm. triggering for us. Yeah. I, a central part of your company and the book is uh, raising emotionally intelligent children. So what is that? What are, yeah. what, what are the components of an emotionally intelligent child? Sure. It's gotten so buzzwordy lately. And so I'm so glad you asked because it's one of those things where it's gotten so buzzwordy. I don't think anyone really knows what it means. Uh, We look at five components here. We look at self-awareness. So being able to notice what's happening in your body. Self-regulation. What do you do once you notice that? Um, Empathy. Being able to connect with others on what they're feeling, not why, not You don't have to have experienced the same thing. You don't have to agree that you would feel the same way in the same situation. Empathy is connecting over a feeling. If you felt disappointed before, you can connect with someone who's feeling that. 
motivation. This is intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. Now we live very much in an extrinsic mm-hmm. motivation society, a lot of rewards. Uh, if you do this at your job, like my brother's in sales and like it is full of external yeah. motivation. You hit this marker and you get this bonus, et cetera. We look at it in school um, with grades and all that. Uh, and it's not all bad. We're just looking at how can we also foster intrinsic motivation for kids mm-hmm. so that they're not always looking outside saying, are you proud of me? Am I doing a good job? But can also look inside and say, I'm proud of me. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm doing a good job. And then the last one we look at is social skills. This is that ability to really read the room and differentiate. How do I show up with my grandma versus my best friend? How do I show up at school versus at home? And with peers versus my parents? And knowing how to differentiate those social interactions. Mm-hmm. And also something of the what I want to say is former generation and parenting is I just want my, and generations probably, I just want my kids to be happy. <laughs> I just want them to be happy. And as you guys point out, and what we know from all of the literature now, like happiness is elusive. It yeah. is this fleeting concept that you're like chasing clouds and grabbing on clouds and you can get it. Um, and I know a lot of time in, in that literature, people are talking more about seeking joy instead of um, happiness, but that's a whole nother topic. Sure. You're talking about purposely cultivating these abilities in kids because that actually creates, I'll use the word wellness, like health mm-hmm. and wellness and life's fulfillment if we can get these skills as opposed to this happiness. I will totally. say parents, as a parent, everyone knows when our kids are happy, boy, it's a lot easier than when they're unhappy. <laughs> so much easier. <laughs> if it's chronic unhappiness. So you, that's, however, you guys are arguing for focusing on something different. Yeah. And uh, just as you pointed out, like no one lives in a state of happiness all the time, unless you have a chemical imbalance, like no one's living in that state all the time. Mm-hmm. And when we look at those phrases, like the dismissive response to, I feel nervous when I go to school, what we're often doing there and is shoving down, like, it's not, don't feel that you're not supposed to feel nervous. And we'll often turn to like, you're going to have so much fun. Zoe's going to be there. I think you're even going to go outside today and play on the playground. You love playing in that boat. We're trying to find things that will bring them joy and make them feel happy so that they don't have to feel the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's so well-intentioned. If there's a world I could sign up for where my kids don't have to feel hard things in four seconds, sign me up, right? Mm -hmm. Like I am there and that's not the world that we live in. And so what feels more important to me as a parent is that when my kids go out into the world, they have a toolbox to navigate the hard stuff that when they're at school and they feel embarrassed or something happens and they feel frustrated or disappointed or angry that they know what to do with that feeling, that they're aware of what it feels like in their body, that they know how to regulate it, and that they know that it's okay to feel that, mm-hmm. that they're not failing for feeling. Mm-hmm. When we're looking at kids today, we anxiety has never been higher than it is today. And there are a lot of contributing factors. But one that I see often, I was just having a conversation actually with a 13-year-old the other day, and he kept saying like, yeah, I just feel like I'm not having a good time in life. And I was like, tell me more about that. And as he started to unpack it, it was that he wasn't only having a good time in life. And I was like, yeah, bud, no one only has a good time. (laughs) Like there are days I don't want to go to work. There are things I don't love to do. Like I don't love doing the dishes. It's helpful for me when I pop a podcast on and I can listen to it while I do them, but it's still not my favorite activity. I'm not like, can't wait to do the dishes. And there are things that we do every day throughout life where we just feel different things. And he was like, it's okay. And I was like, yeah, it's okay, bud. Like everybody's experiencing that. But for him, there was this perception of, I'm only supposed to be having a good time. Right. Right. And it's, you're making a really important point, parents, um, because we all want our kids to feel okay. And for many of us, our emotions are tied 
probably too much to how our kids are doing. I mean, that just kind of goes with it. Totally. And we always need to be aware of trying to separate. But reality is our emotions are tied. What's that saying? You're only as happy as your um, least miserable. Wait, you're only as happy as your most miserable child or something like that, which please, like that's not a way for us to live. But there's a reason that that's a saying. So what I'm trying to say is we inadvertently project the need for our kids to be okay and happy onto them because we want them to be like that and we want to feel better. So what you're saying is we just really need to be aware because awareness is very much a part of your program uh, and a key theme of this show to be aware of what we are saying and what we are doing and the impact that will have on our child. And practicing it with ourselves that, yeah, it is really hard to allow our children to feel hard things when we're Mm -hmm. still learning how to allow ourselves to feel hard things. And that's where what you were just describing there is that codependency of, I need them to feel calm so that I can feel calm. And that is codependency. And what we want to move towards is this interdependence of we lean on each other, we call on each other, we support each other. And Mm -hmm. hey, kid. You don't have to get calm for me. I have my own toolbox for feeling calm and content and -hmm. feeling joy and feeling excited. Mm -hmm. And it's not your job to make sure that I feel that with how you show up in the world. I have my own toolbox for it. Yes. Yes. So how do, like, what is the role parents have in their child's emotions? Yeah, to be that safe space for them. Mm -hmm. And in Mm -hmm. order to be that safe space, we have to take ownership over what's our bag to carry. And so in the SET method, you know, we have those five components. One is adult-child interactions. One is about how we're showing up for them with them. The other four are about us. It's building our own tools for self-awareness. It's building a toolbox for our triggers and our biases and noticing what are we bringing from our childhood I wrote in the book, but like, sometimes I open my mouth and my mom comes out and like, sometimes that's great. Sometimes <laughs> I totally want to pass it on. Yeah. And like, sometimes I've done a lot of therapy and spent a lot yeah. of time and money to try and not pass it on. And yeah. so what does it look like to do something different and building those tools for really responding with intention rather than reacting from habit. We look at self-care and for us, this is what nurtures your nervous system. What does it look like to take care of you throughout the day? Not just, hey, I'm going to go through this cycle of burnout and then I need a break from parenting to recharge, hopefully enough to be able to make it through another cycle of burnout. Mm -hmm. But instead we look at all day long, what are these little ways we take care of our nervous system? We dive deep into that in the book. And then that scientific knowledge is the last part. And that's where we're looking at, we get a little nerdy here around neuroscience and things like mirror neurons. Like you were saying that when Mm -hmm. a child is having a hard time inside, our nervous system reacts to that and is also having a hard time. And so then what do we do with that? How do we find our calm amidst their storm? And co-regulation, right? We're, um, well, self-regulation first in yes. order to the brain-based parenting movement has brought us the term of co-regulation, yes. um, which is so important. And we really do need to know where we came from, what our triggers are, right? All of this self-awareness is so key, everyone. And I really love these questions that you guys pose in the book as like questions to ask as a good parent. I'm going to Mm. read them because they're so important. What's my long-term goal for this child? What's my goal for our relationship? Am I modeling the values I want them to inherit? Like that's so big. And I'm going to repeat them, everyone. Listen to this, mental notes or write them down. What's my long-term goal for this child? What's my goal for our relationship? And am I modeling the values I want them to inherit? Man, those are huge because usually we're caught right in the moment of the situation and the behavior and the meltdown. Mm-hmm. And you're this is the panning back and looking at the big picture of what do I really want? And then what are the steps I need to take to achieve that long-term goal? Not this immediate thing. Mm-hmm. And for me, that really helps me also in the comparison game of parenting of like I'm scrolling social media and I see like, 
ah, shoot, I should be like cutting my child's sandwich into shapes and putting it in his lunchbox and whatever. So Wait, you, so you mean you're not, do, you're not doing that? <laughs> Wait, what? And then I'm like, yeah, I'm failing. Yeah. I'm the worst. And then when I can look at those three questions, I'm like, you know what? For me, that's not one of my values. It's not critical for our relationship. And it's not part of my long-term goals for him. I'm still a good parent, you know? And it literally brings me back to that present moment for myself of like, you're doing enough, Alyssa. Mm -hmm. uh, and keeps me in check there with my own values. But I, these questions are ones I literally use every day as a parent. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I would say, especially when I'm in spaces where I'm more triggered, which often comes up in like being around family or we're out in public at a restaurant or we're at this, we were just at the fair with my kid and he's having one of his largest ever public meltdowns, right? And in that moment, all I want is for it to stop. <laughs> it is uncomfortable. It's embarrassing. I'm like, oh my gosh, who is my kid? What is this? My best friend leaned over to me in the, in the moment. She was right there and she was like, so what's the name of the book again? <laughs> and I was like, daddy, you have some big emotions yeah, yeah. on display right here. <laughs> here right. you go. And it, but it, for me in those moments where there's more triggers present, coming back to these three questions helps me continue to respond with intention. Like, mm -hmm. What do I want for him for the long term? What do I want for our relationship? And how do I model my values mm -hmm. here? Parenting with purpose and intention. That's yeah. what we are talking about. And of course, self-care and self-compassion because we blow it a lot. So every, often. So <laughs> often. And that we need to normalize that, right? For everyone yeah. is is after you make the mistake, or let me say mistake, after you do something um, less desirable than you would like or sure. not intended, um, and those of us, when we have our emotional flares, we often don't realize that till a little bit after when all of the, um, when, when our body chills out and our neuro, neurochemistry calms down. That's the, those are the best learning opportunities for us to take stock and to pivot and try to integrate and incorporate something new. Yeah, 100%. Actually, just last night, I was presenting um, a workshop in person to a group of 100 dads mm -hmm. uh, here in Vermont. And they were incredible, super engaged and awesome. And one of the dads afterwards, at the end of the presentation was just like, thank you for sharing that you also lose your cool with your kid. Yeah. And he was like, it's so nice to hear like, you literally wrote a book on this and you lose your cool and you drop the ball and you come back and you connect with your kid and you repair and that that is enough. He was like, there's been this part of me that has been like, if I'm just a, losing my cool, but then I'm apologizing, like, is that enough? And I was like, yeah, I think if you're, if you're in that same trap over and over where you're like, every day I'm apologizing for the same thing and nothing's moving forward we got to take stock of like, how do we take care of ourselves so that we can create a different system around that. But just the other day, we were coming in from the grocery store. I have a grocery or car full of groceries. I unbuckle my two and a half year old who then climbs into the front seat and is like trying to turn on the car, push all the buttons. Wipers are now going. We have an agenda. I'm trying to like get the groceries in from the car, get him in. We have to get lunch. It's almost nap time. And I'm trying to keep the ball moving. And he's just like playing in the front seat, refusing to come out. It, I end up in this like overwhelmed state. I end up snapping at him, pulling him into the house, bringing him in after all the groceries are in, shutting the door. He's crying through this. And we get inside and I'm like, ah, oh, and like I have that feeling inside of like, Liz, you got to slow down. <laughs> this isn't how I want to show up. And I then pumped the brakes. Groceries are sitting in the kitchen. And I was just like, I'm going to take a minute. I took a deep breath and I said, wow, buddy, my body's feeling really overwhelmed and I need a minute and then I'll help you. Mm. And I took a minute and I regulated and then I was able to hold space for him. And then after it was all said and done, I was able to apologize and let him know that, yeah, when I was feeling overwhelmed, I snapped and I was not kind. I wasn't speaking kindly. I didn't slow down and listen to him. And that next time when I'm feeling overwhelmed, I'm going to try to take a deep breath and find my calm so that I can be kind. Mm. And he was just like, okay, <laughs> you know, like kids are like, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's just a, a great example of how it goes in day to day life and how we can reset and yeah. then and then repair. Right. And the importance <laughs> of repair. Right. And Huge. I think for, uh, for, me- for many of multiple generations, that seems like it, it was never done. It was never done to many people. And then there's this feeling like as a parent, you always have to do something right. You can't show your weakness. And if you make a mistake, try to get away with it and never admit it because then your child will see you as less of an authority. And man, we have moved way beyond that as, yeah. being, as being helpful. And what are we modeling then for our values, right? If right. we come back to that third question, one of my values is that he is able to make mistakes and apologize and reconnect and, mm-hmm. and repair. And if he doesn't see or experience repair, how is he going to learn how to do it? Mm-hmm. So the question I was imagining for um, um, readers and people at your talks and um, listeners is, okay, but don't we need to teach our kids to manage their emotions? Because if they can't manage their emotions, they're going to have a tough life. And the world is not going to be as understanding to them as we are to them because we love them and we lose our stuff. So where's this line of allowing big emotions and helping to regulate big emotions. And this, this, I, I'm not sure if it's a myth, but it's definitely something that has been ingrained in all of us that we need to keep, teach our kids to manage their emotions. Sure. I have a couple thoughts on this. One is that social skills part that they are going to learn. Where is it safe for me to really express and be vulnerable? Just as a lot of us have that, I'm, I show up differently at work than I do with my partner where I've like held it together all day at work. And then I come home and I'm like, oh, now it's like a big exhale. And you get the hard parts of me. And it's a part of being in relationship with people we're closest with and feel safest with. And our kids will learn to do that. They will learn that like, oh, if I show up this way at school, somebody maybe makes fun of me or I feel embarrassed and that's not a safe space for me to just be super vulnerable. And that's okay. Not every space is a space where we are in our safest place. And this is why it's so imperative that we as parents are creating these spaces where they do have a spot to, I consider it like an exhale. They have a spot to just like, oh, let it all out. Mm-hmm. and and have that kind of collapse where they can be vulnerable. And so there's the social skills part of emotional intelligence that will come up. The other part that's so huge for us, and we dive deep into this in the book, is that my goal is that we're teaching them how their brain and body works. And that for all of us, it's a little different, that what it feels like in my body for certain emotions might be different than what it feels like in my child's body. And what helps me calm is different than what helps him calm. I love touch. I love a hug. I want to be close to people. He would love for everyone to stop talking, to stop touching him, and for him to just have some like quiet downtime to calm. He loves vestibular input, like spinning or swinging, dipping upside down. Vestibular input for me is like nauseating. And I love like big body play. I could have a massage for four days and I'm like, I want more. And that's his nightmare. And so a lot of the work that we do in the book is helping folks understand who's the child in front of me, how does their nervous system work, and then how do I teach them about how their nervous system works so that they can, as they build awareness of these emotions, build tools for regulation so they can respond with intention. Mm. That I don't want to see a 12-year-old who is flying off the handle and hitting kids or throwing things because they don't yet have those awareness and regulation skills. Mm -hmm. We can build these skills so that they do have some to call on so that they aren't flying off the handle like we would expect from maybe a one or two or Mm three-year-old. And so I, I think this idea from authoritarian parenting to the pendulum swing of like permissive parenting where kids are just doing whatever they want. We're looking for that middle ground of like, what does it look like to show up and allow emotions and have boundaries around them? And also like, for instance, my two-year-old's allowed to feel frustrated. He's not allowed to hit my body. Right. 
And so we can have boundaries around how we allow emotions while simultaneously building these skills for self-awareness and self-reg. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm really glad you said that. And that's where I wanted to go next with the idea of, of limits and boundaries, because we know from the gentle parenting movement, there's a lot of misconceptions about that because the name, I think, yeah. comes across as, um, a, like, I think, too, quote, soft for a lot yeah. of people. And we know that gentle parenting you're, it's, um, is a movement of under, wanting to understand your child's emotions and behavior and communicate with them and collaborate with them and respect them. And this also has, uh, has similarities in terms of the approach of respect and connecting and collaborating. And yet the misnomer is that, oh, that no, you don't set limits. You just let them walk all over you. And as you just pointed out, limits and boundaries are still part of the model. Yeah, really important part. Uh, in fact, I can't show up as the parent I want to be without limits and boundaries. If I'm in a space where my kid's just throwing things all over and they're hitting me or they're hitting their sibling, then I'm living in a pretty triggered state. And it's really hard for me to be intentional in how I show up. And I don't think I'm giving him then skills to thrive in this world. Mm-hmm. When I'm looking at this, some words that really stick out to me are respectful parenting, connected, curious parenting, Mm -hmm. where I'm really into like, first of all, just respecting all humans. I mean, it's part of the reason we have the book named Tiny Humans, Big Emotions. Mm -hmm. I want us to really see them as humans Mm -hmm. and that we all are human. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to have hard moments. We're all going to have hard days. We're all learning things. And we get to just be in relationship Mm -hmm. together. Mm-hmm. And I think that boundaries are something that for a lot of us feel murky or new because of how we experienced them in childhood, that it wasn't necessarily a boundary of like, hey, here's how you can be in relationship with mm-hmm. me. It was, if you do that, we're not in a connected relationship. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of what not to do and not a whole lot of finding the yes of, hey, bud, if you want to put your shoes on by yourself, go ahead and do so. I'm going to set the timer. When the timer beeps, we're going to go out to the car and I'll put your shoes on you. But if you want to try it yourself, go ahead and do it before the timer beeps. The boundary being, we're going to go out to the car. Mm-hmm. We're going to make this next step. And I'm going to put your shoes on when that timer beeps. If you want to have an opportunity to do it by yourself, you can do so between now and then. Mm-hmm. And you used the example earlier of your own example of, you know, hey, bud, you can have big feelings, but you can't hit my body. Mm-hmm. So what, let's, let's, let's keep going with that. Sure. What do you do then in the model when you have a child with big feelings who hits your body? Because that's what these kids do while they're trying to figure it all out. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And when their nervous system reaction is fight mode of that, like fight, flight, freeze, fawn, I think fight for a lot of us is the most triggering. Uh, For a lot of us, it was not allowed in childhood. (laughs) And kids aren't choosing it, right? They're not like, ooh, let's see, I could choose freezing or fleeing. I'm going to go with fight, right? It's not a choice, it's their nervous system's reaction. And so when I started to understand that, it first provided just more compassion for me of their bodies out of control. And this is what it's doing as a response to being out of control. My job is to help their body feel safe. And so in the meantime, while I'm helping them feel safe, I'm going to keep myself and other humans safe. I will either remove them from where they are, carrying them to a space where they can flop and flail. And uh, my little guy, like the couch is a spot where he will like kind of flail around. And so if we have to move him to a space where he can do that, the couch is a go-to for us. I will hold hands. I had a little girl, she was 20 months in my classroom and she'd been building with magnetiles and her tower crashed and she was disappointed and frustrated. She's crying. And I popped over ready to emotion coach her and I'm down on her level, ready to just crush this. And she slapped me across the face. Oh, Yeah. (laughs) And so I said the only kind thing I could in the moment, which was, I'm going to be right back. (laughs) (laughs) And I just slid my body back away from hers. And she wasn't like spiraling out of control. She was pretty contained. So I just moved back and I took some deep breaths and focused on calming myself, 
because inside in that moment, I want to fight a 20 month old, you know, like my nervous system goes in into fight mode too. And so then I popped back over and I said, I'm going to hold your hands to keep my body safe. And then I went right into emotion coaching. It's the only thing I even mentioned about the safety part at first. Like I'm not mad at her. I'm not saying it's hands are not for hitting. She knows that. Mm-hmm. Or we don't hit in this class, or it hurts me when you hit. She knows all that. Mm-hmm. Her body's out of control. And so I just let her know, here's what I'm going to do to keep my body safe. And then I'm staying with her to emotion coach. And we have a whole chapter on how to emotion coach and what it looks like to then respond with intention to support them. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to punish. We don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to consequence to learn these behaviors. No. And in fact, like consequences, I, and we talk about this in the book too, there's natural and imposed consequences. And I think consequences can be really crucial. Consequences for me are the result of a boundary and like the consequence of I'm putting your shoes on and bringing you out to the car because the timer beeped and that was the boundary that had been set. Right. But for punishment, usually with a punishment, we want them to really feel as bad as we feel or worse. Mm-hmm. And we're looking for like that pain for them in an effort to have them remember that and hopefully not do that same thing again in the future. But what research shows is that it's simply not effective and it jeopardizes our relationship of safety and trust with them. Mm-hmm. Then we're looking for power over and control over them. And when I come back to those three questions again, What I'm most interested in here is a relationship of safety and trust for the long term. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm looking at those long term goals, punishment doesn't fit into it. Mm -hmm. I'd love this quote. When we see that children aren't giving us a hard time, but that they're having a hard time, we can respond with compassion, curiosity and connection. Yeah, it was a game changer for me personally. Mm hmm. It's not personal. It's like, it feels personal, but it's not personal. I mean, she slapped you in the face. That feels very personal. Legit. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. So, um, mindfulness, talk a little bit about the role of mindfulness in your approach. Yeah. Mindfulness is such a, it's a funny word for me because I was like, repulsed by it for a really long time. It Mm -hmm. felt like a culture I didn't fit into. And I felt like there were so many things that went along with it that I didn't identify with. And as I started to like, get cozier with it, I started by first replacing it with the word awareness. Or things like noticing, I'm just gonna notice, I'm gonna bring awareness to. And as I started to do that practice more, I was able to then bring the word mindfulness in, just in case anyone tuning in is also like, oh my gosh, mindfulness, I get it. I've heard it 7 million times. It's everywhere. That was my reaction at Mm -hmm. first too. Uh, Awareness feels cozier for me, but mindfulness for us is really just tuning in. It's being aware. So noticing without judgment, without shame, that when in that moment, she slapped me across the face. And I want to fight a 20-month-old, I'm noticing that reaction inside without judgment, right? Without shame that right now my body wants to fight a Mm 20-month-old. Because when you say it out loud, it sounds bonkers as an adult to a child. Mm -hmm. Like, clearly, I don't need to fight a 20-month-old. But when we notice in the moment, like, oh, this is what's coming up for me, and we're not judging it, then we can respond to that part with intention of like, Oh yeah, that makes sense. You just got slapped across the face. <laughs> yes. Anytime someone hits you, it makes sense to want to fight back. Yeah. And then I can start to move through those feelings and really allow them and process what's coming up. But being aware of them, being mindful of that reaction is cornerstone. You can't regulate what you're not aware of. Right. And we can't access self-control without regulation. And so, so often that's what we want. We want for ourselves and for our kids to control our tone, control our words, control our body language, ask for things kindly, et cetera. And we can't do that without regulation. And we have to be aware in order to regulate. We have to be aware in order to regulate. Yes. (laughs) Yes. 
awareness, guys, and we are all on our um, awareness journeys, no matter how long we live, um, if there's, we're always growing. And our kids are our mirrors and our greatest teachers. And they usually intentionally and unintentionally push all the buttons that we're aware of, but often not aware of. And then it really is on us to be curious and talk to our friends, talk to our partners, seek professional help if we realize we keep getting triggered or we keep acting the way we don't want to act or we find ourselves acting like our parents in a way that we didn't like, that means you're human. And <laughs> um, we just want to be, we just want to keep growing, just, just mm -hmm. trying to learn more about ourselves so we can be the best parents, the best people we can and the best parents for our kids. Yeah. And just intentional and knowing you're not alone in that. Right. Like I said, I literally wrote a book on this and did research on it, and it's a forever journey. Right. Like, I've never left the day as a parent or a teacher and been like, wow, I was perfect today. I nailed every single moment with perfection. Crushed it's, it. I crushed <laughs> yeah. it today as a parent. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's not uh, the goal. And I think yeah. if that's what we're setting up as the marker for success, we're going to leave every day feeling like we're not doing enough. Yes. Okay, Alyssa, it's time for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your child, and or those you love. Yeah. One that was actually pretty recent for me was around separation anxiety, where my child was expressing sadness and it was gut-wrenching for me. And he was starting a new school and he started saying, mama, I'm going to feel sad at school and you're not going to come when I feel sad. And like in that moment, I'm like, yeah, I want to quit my job. I want to just like come and take him out of this. I want to rescue him from this feeling because I hate this feeling that's coming up right now. Mm-hmm. And as I started to notice my like visceral reaction to the idea of him feeling sad and me not being there, for me was like a turning point of, oh, I have more work to do around sadness, mm. specifically in conjunction with separation, where if he feels sad and I'm there, it hadn't felt as hard. But the idea of him feeling sad and me not being there was gut-wrenching. And as I started to like really lean into what was coming up there and noticing patterns from then my childhood, I've been able to do a lot of work around that and healing for myself that have allowed me to show up with intention with him so that he can stretch his rubber band, so that he can practice tapping into these skills he has for sadness, even when I'm not there, mm -hmm. so that he can feel safe even outside of my presence. Mm such a nice parallel there, right? It's about both of you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if you don't have that awareness and you don't go to do that extra work, you're going to be parenting in a way which is based more on your own needs than his needs and his development. Exactly. Nice. Thank you for this conversation. I'm so excited about your book, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions, I, this and CEP, Collaborative Emotional Processing. We're getting the word out. This is a, um, yes, built on the work of many, but put together by you and Lauren in this new concept, which, um, you know, my wife and I were, I was talking to my wife this morning about it uh, and your book. And our kids are older now and we keep saying like, oh man, like where was it? Like we just missed so much of this stuff and how helpful sure. it would have been with our very uh, intense, sensitive uh, children. Just so, so helpful. But we continue to learn and grow. And the thing is, even though this is about tiny humans, um, this applies to all humans as we have been talking about. Yeah. Spoiler alert. It's about yeah. us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, yeah. Dr. Dan. What a lovely hang and yeah. so nice to be in, in connection community with you. And thanks for sharing about the book. You're right. It says tiny humans, big emotions, but it's so much about us. And 
I just had a human reach out the other day who was it has an early reader access and she uh, was like, oh my gosh, I'm reading this. I don't actually have kids. <laughs> uh, she She's a teacher and she works with kids. And she was like, I don't actually have kids, but I'm already starting to use this outside of school in my everyday life with yeah. all the humans I see. And I was like, yeah, yeah. yes, it's a way of being and it teaches yeah. us how to be with our emotions. Totally, totally. Uh, please, so tell everyone where they, the book is at, at when this recording launches. The book will be out, um, and your and uh, seed and sow your your organization. Yeah. yeah, sure. So, Tiny Humans, Big Emotions is wherever books are sold, and it's sold in also throughout the globe in a number of countries. Um, I read the audio book, so if you're an audio book listener. Uh, you get to hear this voice the whole yes. time. Um, and I have seed and sew at seed.and.so sew on Instagram and wherever else and social media. Hang out there quite a bit. Instagram is my main platform. And we also have a podcast, Voices of Your Village podcast for all y'all are clearly podcast listeners. You can come tune in there. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Uh, and would love to just get to know you, be in community, feel free to reach out. Awesome. Congratulations. Best of luck. And I uh, know you guys are making an impact. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Send this to everyone you know with tiny humans, middle-sized humans, and big humans, and all the humans you know, because this is about all of us being human and managing our emotions and understanding our emotions and living in a way where we don't feel shame and guilt about our emotions. Thanks for being a part of our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.